Well, here we are. I'm Kiki <laughs> Valentine and welcome to another edition of Stuck on Earth, where we are all stuck here together and how are we making it count and what are our experiences like and how have we contributed to the solutions or the problems which we face in our world right now. Joining me today, I'm super excited. Eric Davidson is here, founding member of punk rock band, New Bomb Turks, which, um, oh, oh, something's dinging. I, I guess Sorry. Eric's I turkey's Wait, done. Oh, what? It's turned off. It's turned off, I swear. It's turned off. Hold on. It's okay. Off. I don't know why it's doing that. Okay. Everyone knows that if you uh, want to get rich and 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 be famous, join a punk rock band or form a punk rock band. Exactly. Right? Yes. Yes. I am filthy rich, and I'm sitting in my palatial palace up on the Upper West Side. No, I live in Astoria. I'm over in Astoria in Queens. So, damn it! I don't know why it's doing that. I swear I turned it off. Hold on. It's hold okay. On. Here, wait. Uh, hold on. Let me just text somebody to stop doing it. Uh, please. So what we're going to be getting into today, uh, I guess we're going to talk about music and life and current events. And one of those current events is the passing. I don't want to say it's untimely because he was 74 years old, but Stanley Crouch, the writer, uh, MacArthur yeah. genius award winner, and uh, the bull in the china shop. <laughs> <laughs> in a lot of circles, especially his position on uh, certain aspects of blackness, of which he was rightfully uh, equipped to speak. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested to dig into some of that. And of course, Stanley loved jazz and created through jazz at Lincoln Center, a space for the art form to continue to exist. Now, the interesting part of why we're here today and we will be joined hopefully if the stars align despite mars being retrograde right now uh, a couple of other folks <laughs> can share some stories about stanley but uh for you uh I, let's just get a little bit i mean i the concept of stuck on earth is that i talk to people who are in my phone and you are now in my phone mm -hmm. so it's official and um <laughs> tell me a little bit about well I thought to myself, when my, our friend Lee, we have a mutual friend named Lee, who one day hopefully can come on the show, but um, he mentioned New Bomb Turks. And I thought, gee, that name sounds so familiar. And, and then when we spoke on the phone last night, I said, did you did you guys have a hit that charted? And no. And then I thought about it today. And as I was going about my life and uh, I realized not only from my alma mater, which is WXCI Danbury, which I attribute my cool anything about me that's cool is because I grew up in a small city with a college radio station so I was listening to the Pixies in seventh and eighth grade whereas when I got to New York City and had a boyfriend in 2006 he had only discovered the Pixies when he was in his first or second year of college yeah, so I like to use that yeah, it's hard to impart to people what a big deal college radio was younger people because I grew up in Cleveland and we had we had four or five really good college stations that you could pick up. And it was just a really big deal. That's how you heard about new music. You know, that's how, well, besides record stores and stuff, but even for, you know, relatively, I mean, Cleveland was like the 14th or 15th largest music market, radio market in, in America when I was like a teenager. So it's not like it was a tiny town, but everything, all the radio stations sucked, of course, you know, but the college stations were great. 
And that's, you know, where I picked up on most music. And, when did and Newborn I wrote Kirk's... a review of the Pixies. The Pixies, a live review was one of the first things I ever wrote, which I could start there with my writing. Yeah, experience. I mean, you, so let's talk a little bit about your personal background and we will skip around a lot because this is unscripted. Yeah. I hope my neighbor turns off his music outside. I can't hear it on this end. Okay, well, we'll see what happens. I'm wearing the shortest mini skirt. So if I stand, because I was, no one's going to see anyway. I'm like, well, it's not like I'm not wearing pants. But <laughs> if I stand up, this suddenly becomes a, a PG-13. <laughs> anyway. I'm, so. I'm wearing jeans. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> not wearing pants is an ongoing uh, joke here, just because right. of the Zoom culture right. that we're sure, in now. Course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Jesus. Okay, they're driving by. Good. Oh, good. And Okay. Phew. Uh, one of the beautiful things about living in New York City is you just have no idea what the fuck is going to happen from well, moment to moment. Right. We live right by the uh, an above ground train here over in Astoria. You probably won't be able to hear it, but it goes by every few minutes. You know, you know this is this is it. We, we deal with deal with life and do what we can. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, what I was going to say is uh, so you have obviously founded a I think a band that influenced a lot of other bands from what I can ascertain. I mean, whether or not you want to admit that, uh, you're also a writer in your own right, like Stanley and like me. So obviously you're maybe a little fucked up. Um, <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> um, when did the band start playing and touring in like the Northeast at least? Like when did you break away from well, we, Ohio? So uh, I'll, I'll make a quick little bio is that I started writing for like a local weekly paper in Cleveland in around 1989. <clears throat> and I saw so I was writing for a little bit, but I started going back and forth to Ohio State in 87. I'm the band formed in early, basically in 1990. Uh, we started playing local shows around 1990. But we started doing like New York, Boston, Philly type weekend gigs, probably by, you know, the fall of 1990, um, or certainly by 1991. Because we had friends um, our bass player worked at a record store and we were in college radio and I had friends in Cleveland that were already in bands and stuff. So we had some friends and some connections in New York already. So, um, you know, pretty early on, we got into, into, we played a place called Space at Chase, which is clearly not there anymore, but that was uh, somewhere in the Lower East Side. And then we played, you know, Coney, we played down in Coney Island at a place, but we started playing CDs a number of times. We played, uh, Brownies. I don't know if that name. I remember Brownies. Like, yeah, did you play Coney Island High over there on St. Mark's? We did place? play Coney Island High, I think twice, maybe. So, you know, we, yeah, we played, and we played Jersey. You know, we play over at uh, Maxwell's. Maxwell's. Yeah. 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 So um, we started doing that, I, I guess, by the end of 90 or certainly by early 91. And um, yeah, that was our thing, you know. And then our very first actual tour was because we got signed to Crypt Records, and Crypt Records was run by a guy who used to live in New York. He lived in Germany. And he put out the Devil Dogs and a lot of, which was a New York band. And he put out a bunch of stuff. Great, great label. We got over to Europe and we did pretty well. So we ended up with we a classic, you know, we were big in Belgium. You know, it's like one of those, you know, and we got to go to Europe every year, like at least two times, you know, and we went to Japan and Australia. And so we did that over the years. And then, uh, yeah, so we started playing the Northeast around, like, like I said, like early 90s. Were you at all influenced That's by it. jazz or any other kind of music that's not at all related to punk growing up? Or? Well, I mean, I was always, we were all big music fans. I'm not going to sit here and say that, and we'll get into the Stanley stuff, but I wasn't some, I'm not some big jazz, but I've got a few jazz records and I like, I like 
again, we will jump around, but, um, but uh, we are all big music, all kind of music fans, mostly punk and rock and roll stuff, of course, and, you know, rockabilly and stuff like that. But um, we liked a lot of hip hop and all kind of stuff. And my, my, my little knowledge of Stanley Crouch was seeing him on like, you know, Charlie Rose or something. I think he was on one time, but you know, I'd see him on TV once in a while growing up in Ohio once in a while. And um, it's not like I read all his books or anything, but the cool thing was I, I moved to New York and the band kind of wound down. We still play once in a while. We still go play European festivals and stuff, but we pretty much ended in about 2003. And, um, but again, we, we still play once in a while. And I moved to New York in Brooklyn in 2004 <clears throat> and I lived in Cobble Hill. And then I started writing this book. This is my book. We never learn it is the gunk punk undergut 1988 to 2001. And it's basically about all the underground, like garage punk type bands that we played with in the nineties. I like felt there who? was a scene there. I mean, everyone from like the early ones would be like dead moon, the Gories, the oblivions, the mummies, teen generate super suckers, the muffs, and then down through the nineties and, bigger bands like uh, John Spencer Blues Explosion, Rocket from Crypt. Um, so it's basically about, as you were saying earlier, um, a bunch of musicians and writers who never made any money or had hits. But um, there was a pretty big scene, I thought. So I wrote well, a book Well, I just want to say something about the scenes because we'll get into this too, uh, about Stanley and, and how he felt about hip hop yeah. and rap. But during this time, even if we look in the, uh, era of, of your book 2008 to 2001 we can i mean i'm sorry 1998 to 2001 let's say in the late 90s even in the early 90s there were these different distinct segregated scenes at least here on the east coast i grew up on the east oh, yeah. coast so there was definitely like punk skate you know the romper stomper suburbia watching you know kind of almost like <laughs> yeah. skinheadish yeah 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 uh scene Boots. yeah you know, at mm -hmm. going to the Tune In in New Haven or the Globe Theater in Norwalk, um, that type of thing. Then there was like this rave scene and rave culture emerging, which yeah. was very drug heavy. And uh, then there was also this hip hop emergence where, you know, I remember Safe Harbor Hours on commercial radio stations after midnight, they would play songs with swears on them. So I'd stay <laughs> up extra, extra late in sixth grade waiting to hear the fuck shits and bitches um, <laughs> on the radio, you know? Mm -hmm. So how did you, did you experience that? Was there any crossover between any of those groups during well, the time when you well, were most popular? Of, that's kind of like, yeah, I mean, long story short, is like by the early 90s when Green Day and The Offspring and Rancid and some of those bands started having actual like MTV hits and stuff. Um, that was like to us, that wasn't really our idea of what punk was, you know, because it was a little more like kind of poppy and and that more West Coast kind of, you know. And I grew up growing up in Cleveland and being mostly into like more New York and Cleveland and Detroit bands. It was a dirtier kind of punk rock and a little more like garage band oriented, not quite as political exactly. And um but it was a whole under, it really was like an underground scene, I think, you know, and the only bands that really rose out of it that got any kind of attention were by the very end of it. You had bands like the Hives and the White Stripes and the Donnas and these kind of, Mooney Suzuki a little bit came out of New York and, you know, they were on a major for a minute. And there were some other bands that they, they kind of came out of that whole world and finally had kind of like some hits by the early thousands. And in the world that I ran in, we thought everything was pretty much done by the end of the nineties. And 
I even kind of like to think I imply in my book that, that maybe this was the last real sort of guitar based rock and roll sort of movement that maybe happened at, like because it was kind of concurrent with grunge. None of the bands in my books would really be called a grunge band. But, There's um, a distinction between punk and grunge. Yeah, yeah for sure. And how would yeah, you describe yeah. that to a simpleton who's not well versed in <laughs> the mummies or someone, for example? Uh, one had long hair and flannels and the other, no. Um, uh, grunge well, Eddie was, Vedder yeah, sounds uh, like he's pooping. Eddie Vedder always sounds like he's yeah. dropping a turd. <laughs> Not even in a cool I, Tom I, Waits way. Not even in a cool was, Tom Waits way. <laughs> Eddie Vedder sounded or from the uh, Winnie the Pooh cartoons. But anyway, can you hear me? It says yeah. my internet's connection is unstable. I'm also unstable, so the internet connection. Welcome to my um, life. Anyway. You're, uh, you're in a safe yeah. space no, grunge, is, grunge to most of us was like, basically just like a new, a new kind of metal that was a little less about, you know, monsters and demons and, and shit like that and metal and more about like real life, you know, and drugs and shit like that. Um, but it, musically it was a little slower and the kind of garage and punk type bands that we were playing with is very much like we claim, and this kind of gets to Stanley and why I feel like, believe it or not, why I feel I sort of felt a little kinship with Stanley was a lot of the bands in my book kind of looked, jumped over grunge and even hardcore from the eighties. And we're looking more back to like sixties garage rock groups and fifties rockabilly and like the most kind of obscure punk of the 1970s. that was kind of forgotten, like, like, Pay, the Pagans and the Saints and all these kind of forgotten kind of trashy punk bands from the 70s. And that's kind of what, when I started talking with Stanley, which I guess I'll get to, when I learned more about him, you know, his thing early on was when he was talking more about how people should, African-American people should remember their roots in jazz and the older jazz. And that a lot of the newer jazz in the 70s was pretty much a bunch of white guys doing fusion and shit like that. Terrible. I'm totally down with that. Like I, I don't like any fusion. I don't like any of that. So I found this kinship with him that, that you know, we also looked back to like forgotten, sort of the trashiest forms of forgotten music from the mid-century that was almost you know, kind of just almost being made fun of by the by the early 1990s. You know, and the Cramps are kind of the patron saint of that for for me. You know, like they revived all these really weird old forgotten novelty tunes and and rockabilly songs and stuff. And that's kind of what I think this scene was into, like just being more fun and trashy and kind of reclaiming some of that rather than the real serious hardcore that was kind of on the East Coast and DC and stuff. Or the serious- And, and when you say real stuff. serious hardcore, we're talking about like mosh pits. Yeah, you know, the all guys locked in arms and, you know, Lee could tell you more about this than me. <laughs> but I mean, but, I, um, I, so how do I know who the new Bomb Turks are? You know, I grew up, dating skateboarders well, that's a whole other well that's a whole other discussion of which we don't need to get into today but i think the way the industry went was just you could survive because of the whole diy situation you could survive as a band in the 90s and i get that to this in my book a little on touring and putting out seven inch singles and finding small labels to do your record and you know maybe buy a couple local ads here or there or distribute your records overseas and and if you were lucky maybe you could even get to europe and that gave you a whole other feeling of hope that like, hey, maybe we'll just go to Europe all the time, you know, because they treat bands, you know, so much, so much better. better. And 
so you could exist in this world that was underneath even like the B team grunge bands, you know, but there was an audience for it. I mean, we were playing in bars consistently for, you know, 150 to 500 people, you know, or more, your give or take as the decade went on. And some of these bands later, they're still around. I mean, the Gorys still play, the Oblivions still play, the Mummies get more money today to play than they would have ever gotten in the 90s. Um, and, you know, the Hives are still a band. So, I mean, a lot of these people are still around. It's just a different kind of world because guitar-based music just wasn't the popular sound anymore. But also, just to back it up one second, we're talking about the early 2000s, post 9-11, pre-crash, yeah. right? Yeah. We still had Sony, we still had Arista, we still had Island Def Jam as labels supporting the Donnas, the, everybody was like a first yeah. run, first record hit. When the Donna's second record came out, it flopped. They right, weren't right, so right. even. What's the other one? The Darkness, I believe, in a oh, thing yeah. love. It yeah, was around yeah. the same time, same record. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, remember but Jet? Bands, that one, Jet, who had that band, "I'm Gonna Be Your Girl" or whatever. It was oh, that are you one? gonna and, be my girl? Yeah, 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 that one. Yeah, you know, remember those? Like, yeah, there was like that little moment of those kind of somewhat sort of rock and roll bands. But again, even then, it was treated like I remember Rolling Stone articles would be like calling it like neo garage and this trend and they always call it a trend and the, the bands in my book i mean a lot of these bands are still around it's, it's a lifestyle you know it's something you do because you really want to do it but that's again a whole other topic for another well day. here's my question and and it is jumping well one thing is how, so i think i recognized new bomb turks probably from handwritten little you know quarter page yeah flyers that were right. written out at the time, which I still like to make flyers like that. But also when you got signed to Epitaph, right. you were on all these Punk-O-Rama compilations. Yeah, and I mean, it was like kind that's of where I was pulling stuff out of the library yeah. back when we had, you know, carts that you had to put into the machine. You know, yeah, right, yeah. Days and I you had to cards. pull a vine, pull a record, pull a CD and have your right. stack playlist for your yeah. radio show. And, and, the, and the DJ wrote a little review and stuck it on the CD. Yeah. yeah. So I, um, yeah, we got to on Epitaph in 1996 and it was a three record deal. And, you know, um, that definitely, it kind of blew my mind how that whole sort of skate warp tour vans sneakers world to this day, most, so many people come up to me if it happens and they say, you know, oh, I first heard you on a punkorama, you know, and it just showed like how popular that stuff was. And those were just CD compilations trying to tell younger people today. It just like makes no sense, but it was a big deal, you know, to get on those things. And that definitely helped get our name out there. Um, there, there were some other bands in our world that were kind of signed to Epitaph around the same time. The Cramps were on Epitaph at that time. There was a band called the Red Ants, Gas Suffer, Zeke. There were um, all these bands that were in our world, but they just didn't sell like that. You know, and Epitaph was used to selling like 500,000 Pennywise records or whatever, you know. And yeah, exactly. Or no effects and stuff like that. We just didn't, that wasn't our world at all, you know. But they were, they did what they could. The label was cool to us. They were nice to us. And so that kind of got our name out there and really helped with touring too, because, you know, they did a little more with ads and things like that. Um, so then, you know, our name got out there because we were just very active. We played a lot, you know, we toured a lot. So, you know, you can get your name out there and have people recognize the name years later. We didn't, definitely didn't have any kind of hits or anything like that. So you were in New York, uh, you moved here in 2004. So yeah. you were here for um, Lit Lounge and some of the uh, East Village. I mean, things things were kind of on the tail end of being cool uh you know well it's funny i remember one of my stories i always like to tell is 
we went to play, you know, like I said, we still play once in a while. New Bond Church still play once in a while. And we were going to play North Six um, when it, before it was Music Hall of Williamsburg, right? We were going to play there. And, and we, it's the first time we were in that neighborhood, which I think was in 2006, maybe, since we recorded our first album on that same street in 1992. And I remember getting out of the van to record our first album in 92 on North Six. And, you know, it was dead. There was nobody around at all. And I remember looking around and like seeing the view of the city and everything. I'm like, wow, it's kind of cool over here. I can't believe more people don't live here, you know, because this was 92. It was probably the first or second time I'd ever been to Brooklyn, you know. I didn't know where the hell I was, you know. And then we get back there like 14 years later to play a show. And Williamsburg obviously had changed. And I feel like the scene had already kind of pretty much moved over into Brooklyn. You know, a lot of the clubs in Manhattan were already smaller clubs. Oh, like um, Knitting Factory. Brownies, knitting Factory Brownies. Um, you know, we played we played Bowery Ballroom. Mercury Lounge is still there. Mercury Lounge, we played that still there. Well, you know, this uh, the reason we I'm getting onto this track is because uh, so many venues did close during yeah. that time. And then as the post 9-11 New York that you just kind of walked into okay. and the Bloomberg three term and the gentrification yeah. and all of these things, you know, if originally the, the Manhattan folks who got pushed down to the Lower East Side eventually went to Williamsburg and then Williamsburg became condominiums and fancy. And now either, I don't know, maybe they came here to Red Hook, I don't know. But uh, something really important has happened, at least to me in the last 15 years that I've been paying attention is that the cultural richness of downtown New York art scene has been pushed out by the Chase Banks on the corner. Yeah, or the, yeah, yeah. But here's the, I wanna know what you think about COVID-19 the mass exodus from New York City. I don't know how it is in Astoria, but I'll say that Brownstone, Brooklyn, thousands of people are leaving every single day, New York yeah, City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think maybe we have a chance with the wealth <laughs> leaving that cool can? Oh, I always think, yeah. I, I always think that this is when, when you hear friends on Facebook or something, or people from out of New York say like, oh, wow, I hear it's getting real bad in New York again, you know? And, and everybody I know in New York thinks that's awesome. Yeah, well, nobody thinks COVID's awesome, but yeah. But um, like rents, like we were looking at apartments just for shits in Midtown. We went to see a couple and there were two bedroom apartments in the 40s around 8th, 9th Avenue for like 1700 a month, 1600 you know. And in Columbus, Ohio, a two bedroom is like $1,700 a month now sometimes. I mean, it's not always, but you know, it went up everywhere, you know? And so if it's gonna go down and, and I remember before COVID even happened, I felt amongst the music community that there's always this feeling, I don't care where a club is, I'll go see a band wherever, I don't care. If I wanna see the band, I'll go see it. And good luck to every neighborhood. But there's still that little feeling you get when you're in lower Manhattan in the buildings, and it's just, it's just that little bit more exciting to play in a shitty little dive in the Lower East Side than a shitty little dive in Ridgewood. It just is, I think, you know? And I, I do think that rents are gonna go down. I think um, they're gonna have to go down. They're gonna have to start letting some of these smaller businesses come in for a little less money. I'm no expert on this shit at all. Lee would be able to tell you a lot more, but I just do feel like it, it has to. I mean, they, they, they can't just have so many empty spaces and, and, and empty apartments for forever. I, do I know what's going to happen with the giant condos they've been building for the last 10 years? No, I don't. And I don't care. 
I hope they stand empty and I hope they start crumbling like some dystopian nightmare, like leaves growing out of the windows and shit, you know? But when you see these articles from some guy who was a hedge fund guy and now he's moving out of New York, it's like those people always ended up moving out of New York. You know, they wanted to have a backyard. They wanted to have kids. They wanted to more room. A lot of those kind of people, they always moved out of New York. So fuck it, let them, you know? I don't think that they were meaningfully contributing to the no. art. You know, yes, they maybe work in publishing or, you know, but what books are they publishing? Shit, I'm not reading. Also, there's an argument. No. Also, they're saying that, like, a lot of these people that are moving out, like, they did, um, there, there was, like, a moving, a friend was telling me a moving company one weekend, there were, like, something like 14 trucks going in and out. When he asked the guy, something like 10 of them was just people moving to other apartments in other boroughs and other whatever, right? So, and the other people were just going home to their parents for a while for this COVID shit and probably planning on coming back. So I think a lot of people will come back after this that maybe they just wanted to be with their family during all this. So I don't know what the exact numbers or proportions are, you know, percentages, but I think a lot of that's really been overplayed. And although I do think, I don't know what's gonna happen to the Wall Streets of the world because if a lot of pe companies think it's okay to work from home, yeah, shit's gonna change. You're not gonna need giant office buildings anymore you know when but you're reading songs when you're writing songs and let's go let's take it let's get into our time machine and let's go back to the 90s yeah. you know you're writing songs you're writing punk songs what are you writing about what is the okay so what stanley says in one of these interviews we'll watch is that like and i don't know if we, this is pulled but you know uh pop music is for you know young adolescents who want to identify this is pop like radio crap but you know they right. want to identify with falling in love and breaking up and something to party to and something to dance to but what is really the essence of punk rock and and do you think that well one of my go ahead oh no i was just gonna say one of my favorite quotes that i remembered from an interview when i was really young all the time and i always think back on was <clears throat> you know joe strummer in a very non pretentious, funny, straightforward way. Joe Strummer from The Clash said, you know, when am I going to write another love song? What am I going to say that I'm going to sing it better than Sinatra did or something? He's like, well, you know, what am I going to say in a love song? It's all been said a million times. You're just going to keep repeating it. So why not try some other things, you know? And I always try to keep that in mind. And I wasn't like super political. I'd like to think our band, one of the things that I could contribute, I didn't play an instrument, you know, but I could contribute lyrics and, you know, my voice. And I always tried to just write just just different kind of topics than just the usual oh, fuck the government fuck your, my parents or whatever i happen to like my parents so that was never really a, a lyrical option but um you know you can't help but write about girlfriends sometimes or exes or whatever and that's gonna that's gonna come into stuff but i tried to write about just social situations and try to be a little more like thoughtful in my lyrics and i don't know that there's one particular topic that i always wrote about but I tried to, I really liked like wordplay, just good wordplay, like Paul Westerberg or Elvis Costello or Bob Dylan. But then I also like love the Ramones or early Stooges lyrics where they could just say something seemingly dumb on paper that just hit works perfectly, you know, and just try to, I, I was an English major in college, you know, so I just sat there and poured over my lyrics probably a little too much. But um, I saw so many punk bands getting the really generic political stuff that I just thought was kind of pointless by the early nineties. And I tried to be a little more fun with it, a little more questioning, even of the punk scene. Um, Cause people like Jello Biafra and stuff from Dead Kennedys, I thought he did that with his own scene. He was very funny, you know? And, and so, I mean, that's like the what the rest of the punk world was doing. I, I, I don't want to know what How they were How do you feel about the Dead Kennedys? Oh, I love the Dead Kennedys. I keep seeing this meme that went around that said like, 
the Dead Kennedys lyrics weren't supposed to remain this this uh, relevant, you know, <laughs> this relevant, you know. And then another one said it was something like me at 14. Dead Kennedys are right about everything. Me at 23. Well, life's a little more nuanced. Like um, me at 35. Um, yes, life is much worse. Me now. Yes, the Dead Kennedys were right about everything. You know, it's like, you know, but, um, you know, but he's also, he was also very funny, you know, and I think people, they would get pissed off in him. But the one title, Give Me Convenience, the one title of their singles compilation is called Give Me Convenience or Give Me Death. I mean, that should be on the gravestone of America when, when, when we finally go under, you know, give me convenience or give me death is just so fucking funny. So I kind of went in that angle, you know, but I hope. Do you I think that to. this time, that this COVID-19 uh, and civil rights movement will inspire a new era of guitar-based badass rock music? Remember when, when, when Trump got elected, I remember, um, you know, lots of people were like, oh man, this is great because now all these people are going to be really pissed and write all these pissed off songs. And it's like, just pretty much got more dance music and pop songs and you know but the problem is i think there are pissed off songs out there but th they're not going to be in the public consciousness the way that like if the rolling stones wrote street fighting man because rolling stones were in the top 10 fucking charts and everybody had four radio stations and one record player you know so you know everybody even if they didn't like the stones probably heard them walking down the street now music is just so ghettoized everywhere like it's just everyone can pick their own little thing to go into and listen to that it's hard to come up with those kind of anthems and have anybody hear them as an anthem for our time you know besides maybe like if Beyonce did one or something you know and you know even her, her last that, album had know. a little politics and stuff I wouldn't even know uh, yeah, I mean I interview bands young bands because I still write you know and I'll ask them like come on hurry it up write a really cool pissed off anthem because of course everybody hates Trump and everybody hates fascists and you know come on let's go you know get us a, I don't have a band so let's come on get, you know get and they're always like, well, you know, um, we're mad, you know, and, and it's just a different, I don't know. That's, again, that's getting really heavy. We One of my neighbors, I ran into a neighbor yesterday and I told him about this and I said, hey, would you want to come on and do this? He said, oh, now's not a good time, but I think it's a cool idea. Hit me up. And it's um, Gibby Haynes. Oh, yeah. He lives over there, right? Yeah. So do you have you ever had any experience with the butthole surfers? Well, I saw them in Cincinnati with L7 opening up and they were really great. And I feel like I, I, I always liked them early on and I never, I got to see them, I think, right when they were just starting to get really big in the 90s. Um, and then I didn't care so much after whatever. I didn't really follow the butthole service that much. But it was a great show. And I love the early records. And then I remember I'd ride my bike around Red Hook and I thought it was so funny. Years later, you know, I'm riding my bike around Red Hook and I'd see Gibby walking with one of those baby holster things, you know, and just thinking like, this is so hilarious. The guy that gave us the Shaw Sleeps and Lee Harvey's Grave, you know, like a song like that. And he's walking with the baby holster. I just, I loved it. I thought it was great. So it was he's, amazing to me. Yeah. That he's a great oh, dad. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure he's amazing. He yeah. has a book that came out about a dog. Yeah, like, a kid's book. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think it's maybe young adult. Um, yeah, young adult. Yeah. Oh, adult my friend novel. says, hey, remind us who we are talking with. Uh, this is Eric Davidson from New Bomb Turks, who's a New Yorker living here with us, it, stuck on earth, just happens to be <laughs> stuck on earth here. I'm going to segue, uh, I'm gonna try to screen share some of these little video clips. I'm hoping that these other folks call in, I guess I'll try to text and just make sure. <laughs> no, okay. So Stanley Crouch, my friend Stanley, 
Stanley wrote a, a lot of books and one of them is, oh, I don't know. I think my screen is not mirrored, but uh, Kansas City Lightning, The Rise and Times of Charlie Parker, which uh, came out, I believe in 2013 and HarperCollins published it. Uh, it is 2013. So this book really talks about all of these instrumental people who influenced jazz as a sound and and that charlie and stanley was a genius i think mm -hmm. and stanley thinks that charlie parker was a genius his playing and how charlie parker was able to hear and play along with the drums and then hear and play along with the bass and hear and play along with the other horns and then still be thinking and processing what he was about to do next. And the improvisation aspect, um, Stanley always flattered me about my improvisation skills and as a writer and an observational, observational humorist. So I, I'll miss my flattery from Mr. Crouch yeah. the most probably. Yeah. Uh, many nights we would accidentally run into each other or intentionally run into each other. But it was, I think I told you this last night, it was always on the full moon. And so I think it's kind of uncanny that Stanley left us this week just in the shadow of the new moon and that yeah. the moon is dark tonight for, for Stanley. Uh, he also had a book called uh, Don't the Moon Look Lonesome Tonight. Lonesome and the Lonely Night, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, so that's an interesting little read. So... I tried to in invite um, this guy, Ethan, who wrote Stanley's obituary for NPR. Stan oh uh, I'm sorry, Ethan Iverson. Uh, we were messaging on Instagram a little bit, but since he's not in my phone, I can't have him come on. Right. Sorry. Well, so can I say really quick about with Stanley? Like, basically, my connection with him was when I moved. So I moved to when I moved to Cobble Hill, and I I was writing my so far only book I've ever written. And it's the first book I've ever written. I'm a little nervous, obviously, working on it. I would go to this coffee shop, Nadra's, which I think later was called Maybell's. And I would sit there for hours, like a de facto office, you know. And pretty soon, you know, here's this guy. And I totally recognized him, you know. And then one day we just got talking. And then every time I went in there and he would be there, which was quite often, we would just get talking, you know. And as you obviously know, you know, um, but one of, one of his best pieces of advice was just like, you just have to sit down and just write, 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 write. You can always edit out shit later, but just get the thoughts out of your head. So we'd be talking and going on one of these hour and a half long conversations. And I'd be like, you know, Stanley, this is awesome. And I can't believe how many great stories you have. But as you told me, I have to write this fucking book, you know, and I would be like, and he'd laugh, you know, and his laugh was really awesome, you know, but it was just amazing to me. I'm like, it, it was one of those little things. I grew up in Cleveland. I moved here in 2004 after living in Columbus for a while. And yeah, it's one of those little things where you're like, this is one of those reasons people move to New York because I can just bump into this fucking guy and we end up becoming pals. And he was just so, I, I knew kind of what his sort of image was in the press. And as he was this kind of like in the eighties, a lot of people were sort of like, oh, offended by, you know, he wasn't a black nationalist anymore and all that. And, but to me, it was just a super nice guy that like, gave me advice and just told me really funny stories. So he told me one where he was in this East Village club. It might've been, I can't remember, maybe it was a Village Vanguard, but it was somewhere. And he said, it was a jazz show, mostly, you know, lots of African-American people. And he said, this guy comes up and sits with them and just starts babbling and he has crazy hair. 
and he goes to the bathroom. He says he keeps running back and forth to the bathroom, you know, and and he comes and he goes to the bathroom and he finally asks someone. He's like, "Who is this guy?" And they're like, "Well, that's Phil Spector," you know, and and he's like, "No, I don't know." And they're like, "You know, Ronettes," and and they start telling him a few songs. He goes, "Oh, okay, I know those songs," you know. So Phil Spector comes out of the bathroom and starts screaming at him and accusing him. Phil Spector with his giant bodyguards next to him, you know, starts screaming at, at Stanley, accusing him stealing his coke or something and Stanley was like what are you doing here anyway white boy get the hell out of here you know it's just like little things like that and what I why, why I feel like I connected with him was because one I told you earlier I felt like his wanting to make sure that you don't lose sight of the older musics that you know set foundations and all that and that you should be proud of that um was a weird sort of connection to how I felt to some of the old music I was writing about a little bit but um he he's known as this lofty high ideals genius jazz guy but his stories were always very kind of down to earth and, and showed that like real musicians don't sit around talking about pentonics or whatever the fucking eighth notes all the time they talk about you know whatever girls and boys and, and rent and you know it's the shit that we all talked about and i love that about him that you know he lived right around the corner i only went to his apartment once but walking into it i was like I don't even can't even imagine what's in some of these piles of papers and records and books, you know, because I'm a collector kind of too, right? And I'm like, holy shit. And then one time he had an extra, he had an extra ticket to go see whatever the new Terminator movie was in 2008. He's like, you want to go to this Terminator? Yeah, okay. So we went to that Cobble Hill Cinema. Cobble Hill through, Cinema. <laughs> yeah, we sat through the whole fucking Terminator. It wasn't very good, of course. But then afterwards we talked about it and got a coffee or whatever and, and it made it very interesting. I miss going to the movies. Yeah, I know. I really and talking do. to someone about it after. I'm um, just going to read a quick ex excerpt from uh, Kansas City Lightning just because uh, this is about Charlie Parker. Charlie had been gone for about two weeks when Rebecca came home one afternoon and found him sitting on the couch in the parlor. He looked as though he had been extremely ill. His dark skin had an ashen cast. His eyes were weak, and he was so thin that he seemed much taller. When Charlie saw her, he leaped up and ran behind the large pot-bellied stove that was in the middle of the room. He stood there staring at her, his clothes hanging loosely on him and fear in his eyes. When Rebecca moved toward him, he went to the other side of the room. Charlie, what's the matter? She asked, trying to get close to him. There was no answer, only a frightened stare. Puzzled, Rebecca went up to their room. Charlie remained downstairs for nearly a month, never sleeping upstairs, never going out to play music, never speaking to Rebecca, only staring at her in silence. Then, in the middle of September, Rebecca heard a saxophone as she lay on the bed in their room. I ran down those steps, eased open the door, and he was blowing himself to death. Charlie was standing there next to the piano. Oh, he was blowing. I have never heard him blow like that, and I've been to the dance halls where he'd blow, you know, but I had never heard this kind of music before. You know, it reminds me, this is when genius musicians lose their fucking minds sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I wonder about Stanley and his health in the time leading up to uh, his death, I had tried to reach him via email and, and was trying to contact him. I knew he was sick. I knew he was in a hospital somewhere, but it's, he's a hard guy to find if you're not talking to him. <laughs> that, well, that's, yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting you said it. Cause like, basically when I was working on my book was when he was working on that Charlie Parker book. So the conversations would often end like, he'd be like, yeah, I should get back to this too. You know, I'm working on this book about Charlie Parker. And I was like, wow, crazy, you know, and, and even at that point, I was a little like, 
that's such a monumental figure they have to write about, right? And it was obviously important for him to do this and get it done, right? Now, did I have any sense that he was sort of any sicker or anything? Not really, he didn't really talk about his health much, but I guess I just kind of guessed, you know, he, he had other health problems and stuff. But then as happens in life, I ended up moving to Astoria. Um, I didn't get back to that neighborhood as much. And you know, th that coffee shop closed and I just kind of fell out of touch with him. I emailed him a few times. I think, I hope the company sent him the book because I thanked him in the book um, amongst uh, other people. But, um, you know, and I just kind of fell out of touch. And just a few weeks ago, I was riding through Red Hook and I was thinking, man, I wonder if I'll, it'd be great if I saw him sitting out on that stoop or whatever. Uh, obviously he was already at some in hospice or something by then. Yeah. So but man, we're, like when he was working on that, I was thinking, this is interesting that he's working on a book about Charlie Parker, particularly, you know, so. Let me do some screen sharing of some of these. So you mentioned, did you mention you saw him on Charlie Rose? Here's a clip. I believe so, yeah. Uh, here's one, I, I hope it goes in the right spot. Let me share the screen. I don't know if we're gonna be joined by the folks that I thought, but here we go. Okay, Google, what would we do without technology today? So can you see this screen? I can see it, yeah. Okay, good. I'm gonna make it big. So here's a, uh, gee, I want to, I don't remember what year this is from, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, uh, well, I mean, it's a, it's a music in which a number of things are taking place that often don't get addressed. I mean, there's a, there's a great improvising voice. Then there's a person who organizes music, composer, band leader. And then there's the interaction between the audience and the, and, and the music itself. And the fact that, that, that a language, that, a, that an ensemble language, a collective language of music, partially composed and partially improvised, shows how powerful people can be themselves and be a collective at the same time. And that's where the real force of jazz comes from. When you hear a, when you hear a, a, a band come together on the bandstand and really start to swing, where each person is, is himself and is, and is, and is uh, responding to everybody else at the same time, and that's where the thrill comes in. You know, because it, it shows that you can have people making collective decisions and avoid anarchy. And it's sometimes people say uh -oh. the notion of improvisation is sometimes misunderstood because it suggests that people just free -wheel. It's just still there. It is less than anarchy that in fact, it is the only way that the improvisation can take place. I don't know where Charlie Rose just went, but we can still hear him. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nobody knows where Charlie Rose went. I don't know where Charlie Rose went. <laughs> Sorry, friends. I'm kind of wondering where he is right now, too. Well, you know, he's there with Wynton Marsalis, who he loves a lot. Well, this is incredible. It's just living on. Can I share the screen again and see where it went? Try that. Share it and close it again. <laughs> To One thing I less know less about jazz is computers, so do try. How did you become a jazz musician? Holy cow! Well, this is hilarious in live television. No one likes listening to Charlie Rose that much. No. No, no, still there. More connected. I think I just have to close the whole experience. kit and caboodle. You know, I, I love classical music, uh, uh, but for me. Did I lose yeah. you? 
No, I'm not hearing it anymore though. Oh, so thank God. Saying. Please okay. bear me. Sorry about the technical snafu. Oh. It's weird when there's like a phantom chart. It's the ghost of Stanley just um, creeping out. So I wanted to talk about this rap discussion panel. Um, let me find it. And, and I have luckily the time mark here. So I'll make sure that I don't do that again. Um, so there's this rap discussion panel in I believe it's 1998 something around the time when when you were emerging and let's see 42 minutes into this interview I think this is so interesting because well he's Stanley Crouch hated rap yeah did you guys talk about that at all? I mean, the little bit I remember that we talked about that, like, you know, he's an old guy, just in a general sense of like, he's not going to get it. He's not going to like it. It's not part of his generation or even a little bit after. It's just not, it, hip hop is definitely one of those things that just, some people are just never going to get it. They think it's shouting and talking over beats and that's it. So I didn't get into it too much with him about that. Um, I can understand where he was coming from. I tried to tell him like I need to tell him, but how some of the earlier hip hop, well, like early nineties, late eighties hip hop groups that used a lot of jazz samples and things. And obviously he took that as like they were taking music or whatever. Uh, I hope they got paid, you know, like that kind of, those kind of talks, you know? Um, but other than that, I can't say that I have a specific story, but yeah, I remember him just saying it, you know, he never, he came around to it a little bit, some of the improvisation and just some of the sheer talent of spitting out all the words and the poetry of it, you know, I think he could kind of appreciate that. But um, that's about, I, I don't have any specific story I could tell you about what he thought about that. Yeah. Well, well it sometimes it's just age, you know, he's not going <laughs> to get it, you know. Because I remember asking him about punk even. And of course, I didn't expect him to give a shit about any of that. But he said he had vague memories of walking past CDs and seeing bands in there a couple of times. He just thought it was like a louder, faster rock. You know, it didn't really, wasn't something he'd be into. But he wasn't acting like he was all offended by it or something, you know. But um, Oh, well, he definitely thought it was garbage. And it contributed negatively to, uh, well, he called it black exploitation yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. So here's a clip of this guy that he's with is the public enemy, like publicist, but he has some other title. And I, and oh. I also just want to throw some praise and props to Stanley's sweater in this interview. Was it the minister of culture? Is that what he's calling? Maybe, no, was I don't it? even think maybe it was something like that. <laughs> it, it's just funny, but not. Um, all right, let's share that puppy. And here we go. This is Stanley talking uh, about uh, rap. On the no criticism, I had of all that stuff. When they used to be these white guys, they're always the white guys, aren't they? And uh, they used to like make this thing about how wonderful it was we were getting to see the real black voice and the real black community, where people would be talking about shooting people and knocking people in the head and raping people and all of that. So I told these guys, I'll never forget this. I told them, I said, hey, now you guys. I said, like, you're talking about often some stuff being pumped into a simulated, illiterate mass of people who do not think in terms of metaphors. They're not like you thinking that that's a metaphor for making your mother and Scarsdale mad. They might take that literally. Now, when I said, now, I said, now, 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 I said, mark my words. If one of these guys puts out a record that says something like, there's one thing I want to tell you to do that's never make a deal with a goddamn Jew. You're going to get upset then. Then the content is going to be important. 
as long as the content is about niggerness and bitch that and so and so and you motherfucker blah 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 blah, it's just going to be those coons over there entertaining me with some kind of barbaric activity. The moment the, the moment the spirit pointed it literally at you, then or somebody that you respect, then it's going to be an issue. And lo and behold, when Professor Griff came out here with his stuff, and uh, uh, then suddenly the content really became a serious question. And, it's a, and it is a serious question, exactly. This, and that's the reason why there's been a long argument about against racist iconography in mass media. Because, okay, it might not affect you, but some guy who's an illiterate guy who's mad at the world for whatever reason, if he sees me or Harry or her and her depicted a certain kind of way, this person may act on that information. And we've seen it done. It happened with Birth of a Nation. I mean, the Ku Klux Klan was relatively moribund. Birth of a Nation came out. And what did they have? Millions of people suddenly were in the Klan by the end of the year. I would, I would agree. So, whoops. Well, I wouldn't Don't agree. even, don't even. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, uh, any thoughts on any thoughts on that clip? Well, as usual, <clears throat> Stanley just got about 150 different ideas, I think, um, thrown out there. So, um, geez, I'd almost have to watch it again. But, um, you know, yeah, he was right. He was very concerned with that whole, if you keep bringing up that imagery, it's going to make people think that all African-Americans are like that. And we're trying to move past that. I remember early on him being called even like a neoconservative back in the 80s days when that word wasn't yet so terrible. It was like a questioning of um, this reclaiming old words and trying to use them as power. Like he just did not like that kind of stuff. And um, it's interesting when he says some idiot who hears this, he's not going to recognize the metaphors and all that. I always wonder why you hear hip hop at like some Trump rally or something. I'm like, do these people, how do they miss the obvious disconnect that goes on when there's hip hop being played out of a truck that has a Trump flag or something, but that's kind of- You mean like the revelers and the, the tailgaters? Yeah, or yeah, you know what? Yeah, yeah. Music. Oh yeah, just like I, the other day, I saw a truck go by and, and like a, a black artist was playing and I'm like, how does this Trump flag guy not- between where that comes from and the kind of person that he supports. But he, they're not connecting those things. They just think entertainment, really, it's just beats, you know, and that's music for now. I don't know what Stanley would think now because hip hop is clearly the dominant music form, you know, in, uh, in the world. So he, you know, he lost on that argument. But, um, but yeah, I, I mean, he makes some good points and he makes some, I would have liked to heard what those, I'll watch the clip later, but I'll see what the guests Yeah, I can get you those to. for sure. Um, here's in the Zocalo. I just have yeah, to- He worried about that stuff going back to the seventies, like black exploitation movies, right? You know, like he didn't like those either, you know, so. There's so many great, uh, well, if you try to look up on Google videos, uh, Stanley Crouch interview now, it's just, you know, all about his passing. But if you do a little digging, I mean, I can I'm, I could put all of these clips in. Uh, oh, shush, 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 shush. Um, you know, just thinking about also how Stanley would tell stories, as you mm -hmm. said, there's a million like it's really hard to pull excerpts from some of these interviews with him because he has he's having 58 thoughts at once in one yeah second. you want to answer something and you don't want to interrupt him but you kind of can't interrupt him because he's such a fruitful talker that it's hard to interrupt him and you want to make a point and you just you can't 
because he's going to make it better for himself. And, you know, yeah. you, basically, you basically have to make a point on the very last thing he said. You know, you can kind of talk on that. But he would he would throw out so many things that it would be hard to, you know, catch up. So this is a. Oh, let's see. This is fun. Um, gee, this is from 2007. The, the quality of the video is not good. But... No, he wasn't going to go there, as they say. But I think that's the point. In other words, do you think anybody on, okay, like, these guys are all rich, right? So, so do you think that a guy on Wall Street actually reads 50 Cent lyrics and thinks, this guy could be a partner in the firm? <laughs> I think he's on to something. This is a very intelligent man. No, no, these guys, not, that, that's not what's going on. Now, the thing is, so for instance, so see, this, this, is, this is what I find fascinating. If you have Barack Obama here, right, and there, there are supposedly questions about his, his authenticity, then you have 50 cents over here, and there's supposed to be no questions about his authenticity. Okay, so I was, so at one point I was on, on a show with a guy. Don't you think the 50 cents is, is authentic? I said, authentic what? He said, well, you know, he, he lives an hard life. I said, okay. He said, you know, he was shot nine times. I said, well, I said, I know something about guns and growth bones. I said, I'll pick you this. He did not take nine shots to the torso. Because I think, you know, because nine shots out of an automatic weapon in the torso, he wouldn't be around. He would, he would, he would be someplace shaking hands with Tupac Shakur. They would, they would be talking about the way it used to be down there. Well, no, or up there. You know? <laughs> it all depends. It's so interesting. I think there's a lot of guys on Wall Street right now who would probably think about hiring 50 Cent, a lot of hedge fund people, but whatever. <laughs> um, and I'm sure they all have 50 Cent records. But um, yeah, you know, that. yeah, I mean, but go ahead, sorry. What were you oh, no, 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 I just, uh, you know, my son is six and really into A Tribe Called Quest. And I'm sure Stanley would protest this. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure we, I, I'm just, it sucks. I'm not going to get to see him again. But yeah. I, I think that Stanley was ahead of his time in so many ways with so much of this thinking. And it's unfortunate that he's been sick or had been sick for so long because I didn't get a chance to talk to him about, you know, what's going on out there after yeah. the, the murder of George Floyd and uh, Breonna Taylor, of course, and all of the other lives, but really that being the impetus for the movement and coronavirus and the lockdown and the police protest, just this um, pressure cooker that obviously took 400 years to get to for a lot of people. But Stanley had, um, I think he was just the most brilliant guy and cancel culture. You're, you're older now and you were around in the 90s when gosh, what was there even, I won't, there wasn't even Friendster, was there? Like, where could you get slagged? I mean, 
Yeah, no, there was nothing. So like, I guess when I first started, websites really getting popular and everybody referencing them would have been like 97, 98, a lot, you know, um, consistently. Friendster was like a very end of 90s thing, right? Yeah, I just feel like there was no instant uh, takedown like there is nowadays. Do you have any uh, thoughts or feelings on cancel culture? Oh my God. A million and none at all. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, like, it's just one of those topics that it seems like something, no matter what you say, some foot is going to get put in some mouth, you know? So I tend to like, when people comment on this stuff on Facebook and things like that, like, I don't even want to get into it because there's just so many layers and context is always lost. And we just watched that clip right there with with, uh, with Stanley on that, talking about hip hop and saying the N word and everything freely and everything, you know, and and... And you wonder if that would even be on a TV show today or whatever, and he'd be bleeped out, you know. I don't know, I'm, I'm jumping around here a little bit. But I mean, it's, it's a pretty complicated. I, one of my heroes when I was young was Lenny Bruce. And his basically his whole theory of like, if you use words enough, they will lose their power. And, and if you, they're just, it's just ink on a paper. It's not going to hurt you. They're just letters. But when you put them together, they make a word. But really, they're just letters. Well, I believe all that. But as I got older, certainly some letters that go together have a little more power than, than some other, other words, you know? And I don't mind the uh, idea of not using certain words anymore because they're stupid. Just like we don't use leeches on our body to get rid of a cold or whatever anymore. You know, things move on in life and you have to, you, you should adapt. Um, but boy, that's, that's kind of a can of worms to get into for probably a whole other show too. Yeah, because, uh, well, I just bring it up because I- Stanley would definitely have been- dealing with that were he alive today. And I think as an old person, usually most people get more entrenched in their beliefs as they go on. And I think probably even after George Floyd, I'm just guessing, he still would have had a problem with some hip hop lyrics or iconography, probably because that's what he, you know, wrote about his whole life. So I, I mean, I don't know, I'm not gonna speak. Seriously shunned and uh, disliked Malcolm X. He, uh, Spike Lee, Lee even, you know. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, but like you said, he, he, some of those, if you take out, if you look at certain things he's saying, he is talking about empowerment. He is talking about, you know, bettering the community and all that, you know, and certainly I remember talking about cops. He was no friend of cops all the time, you know, being in the jazz world. I'm sure he knew many, many friends who got busted for having like one fucking joint on him, you know? Well, he grew so, up in LA and says, tells stories about, um, riding the bus to go to Hollywood yeah. and being in the black neighborhood. And as you get on the bus and you ride a long ride closer and closer to LA, there's fewer and fewer people of color on the bus. And he said that the LAPD would welcome you when you got into town, you'd get stopped as a black person and you'd get stopped while you're walking around LA and they'd stop you right before you got on the bus to get back home. Yeah. So, He's also like, he's a, a great critical mind and he's a music critic and he also was a musician. And that's, that's always nice too when you can actually find music writers who actually perform too. So they have the whole kind of well-rounded. You know, yeah, he'll, I mean, I, I guess he won't tell you, but he would have said, you know, had he kept up with the drums, he probably would have been great at it, but he yeah. dropped it. Mostly he was pretty good. But he, you know, whenever you're a writer and then especially with jazz, he lived through the era when jazz and context is always something with cancel culture and all that that is really hard to explain because you have to talk about decades and hundreds of years and nobody ever wants to hear that. They just want to get mad right now, right? You know. But he watched jazz go from 
a somewhat derided fringe music to being considered somewhat popular and sold and Charlie Parker showing up on nighttime talk shows and whatnot to becoming a very, very respected to by the seventies becoming an academia sort of thing that people studied and broke down and took very seriously. And I'm sure he loved all of that. But then the culture it came from, the quick body story I'll tell you, it very quick was, it's body, so be, beware of the ending of this, but, but he, um, he said he was at a, um, he was a young jazz writer in the late 60s and walking around this jazz festival and he got a backstage pass and he was so, so excited and oh, he's seeing all these jazz stars all over and he was so excited. And he saw Thelonious Monk and I think McCoy Tyner, I think. And they were talking and they looked really intense and heated and they were talking. And so he said he, he like steeled himself and he's like, I'm, I'm going to be ready. We're going to talk about, you know, syncopation and all this stuff, you know, and we're going to talk about like notes and, you know, all this jazz bow stuff. And he said, as he approached them, he could hear all they were talking about was eating pussy. So, you know, this, it's, you know, which again, one of those great stories of like, but so I feel like the stuff that he loved came from a really fun inspiration. But by the time he starts writing about it, it's an academic thing. And he probably wants to be accepted into the academic world too. And he's gonna be because he's a great writer. Then he gets backlash from people who think he's not as authentic. He, I remember him, that's funny you showed that clip because I do remember him talking about how Obama wasn't considered as authentic and how kind of offensive that is, you know? And- um, Well, yeah. and Stanley and I both bonded on um, how much people don't like us sometimes you know if you have especially as a female identifying person a voice and opinion you're a bitch you know you're in the older days you'd be a witch and you'd probably be dunked in a in a puddle somewhere a deep right. puddle or yeah. you know at worst burned at the stake um stanley is here on this c-span <laughs> In the, talking about the coverage of Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. So the Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton saga, if you remember, and for the younger folks out there, please uh, watch Monica's TED talk if you want to have some context of what her perspective was about this. But the president of the United States got a blowjob from someone, didn't pay for it, and uh, she fell in love with this guy as interns sometimes do. I don't know if you've ever worked on a movie set or had a merch girl that maybe some things happen when you work closely together. Sometimes feelings can emerge, just humans being human. Uh, but anyway, for some reason, Stanley's on C-SPAN and they have a phone number in DC here, for one for Democrats to call, one for Republicans to call, and one for others to call, which <laughs> is their independent line, which at least in 1998, there was some glimmer of a three-party system right, yeah, yeah. like now it's like a huge mess um anywho uh i'm gonna share this screen and this is uh stanley they're, so they're taking callers and and again i can send all these i'll put all these uh nested links when i upload this to youtube so you can visit them at your leisure and of course do your own exploring so this is i think stanley um really talking about the core of cancel culture, what, what amounts to be in, in 2020, or at least for the last couple of years, you say one bad thing or wrong thing, or someone finds out, you don't have to worry about being on page six anymore. Right. You don't have to worry about being on PerezHilton.com anymore. Right. You know, you can be taken down. Your business could be taken down. Your family could receive threats. I mean, it's a totally different ball game. 
back in the 90s when this happened, the Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton situation um, took on a life of its own. For the first time, we had 24-hour news coverage about a blowjob. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is insane. And the, yeah. the anonymity of this woman, um, Marv Albert's case, the, the anonymity of the victim uh, or accuser was concealed. You know, she wasn't visible to people, but Monica was out in full regalia on her little adorable beret. So um, hi there. All right. We're just going to do Stanley and then we'll, we'll wrap it up here, but here we go. Here's Stanley being just uncle Stanley. I love him. Hold on, where's the sound? Hold on, we gotta back it up a little bit because it's good. Oh yeah, there's sound a little X there. Well, I mean, Delano Roosevelt supposedly was a lesbian after she found that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was having affairs with other women, wheelchair or not. And uh, what it comes down to me is this. Even many Republicans have said that, uh, Newt Gingrich has said that FDR was one of the greatest presidents that we've ever had, maybe the greatest president in the 20th century in terms of the way in which he negotiated the problems of the Depression and won an extraordinarily difficult war or helped with an extraordinarily difficult war. Eleanor Roosevelt is one of the most remarkable women in American history. I mean, what she stood for, what she stood up to, the way she, the way she refused to accept uh, uh, racist tenants, the way she projected the idea of women being able to get out here and do what they wanted to do as, you know, equal to other people. I mean, what are we supposed to, I mean, here are two examples, it seems to me. And uh, had, shall we say, the American public found out what we now know about the two of them, uh, I don't know, I think we would have been in a world of trouble because we would have lost two extraordinarily important people in our history. And about... I think that's interesting. Yeah. I think like, like Al Franken, right? You know, but like it'd be really nice to have Al Franken around uh, Congress these days. Um, well, I do want to say really quick that I'm old enough to remember when the phrase politically correct was not a negative. It, it started as a kind of a um, trying to say, like, just, just, you know, think of other people's feelings. Don't use certain words. Watch what you say. It's what your parents tell you when you grow up. And it slowly morphed into a put down. And I feel like that's happening with cancel culture a little. I also think things do happen faster now. And I already feel like people aren't using the phrase cancel culture as much. So like, I feel like hopefully maybe we're moving past this kind of instant judgment um, and instant sort of, you know, uh, because yeah, you do sometimes lose people. Sometimes you lose people who should be lost. You know, um, I think Jerry Falwell Sr. I think I love finding out all this shit about him. It's hilarious. Um, the latest one today was, you know, he was just bleeding in his house because he was drunk and fell on a garbage can or something. And his wife had to call 911, wouldn't give the name of him because she's like, I don't want to tell you, you'll know who he is. You know, I, these stories are hilarious. So I don't mind if Jerry Falwell Jr. gets canceled out, but I know what you mean. And I see what Stanley's saying there. and. Uh, yeah, the whole blowjob thing was ridiculous in light of he got impeached for that. And then you look at Trump and everything he's done, everything Bill Barr's done, and they're not getting fucking impeached. Well, Trump did, thank God. But um, she meant nothing. 
really still yeah. there. Well, it's still on his, I mean, it's still there. And, and if he loses, he'll have to go through a lot of court cases. I'm sure he'll probably end up in jail. Well, as obviously uh, being a, a punk rock singer and writer and uh, innovator and influencer back in the nineties, <laughs> you're obviously a political expert. So uh, what do you think is going to happen in November with an this? Influencer. Do you have a, a, a crystal ball over there in, in Astoria? I'm a, yeah, there's a league of buy them on any corner, really. It's, um, uh, uh, Queens is like the exotic orient or something yeah, for me over yeah, here. Yeah. But I'm also on a peninsula safely tucked away from the rest of civilization. Yeah, I love it. And you though. see the others who choose this life and, you know, yeah. one of Stanley. But actually, he was oh, on I, the other side of the BQE, so he was more on the mainland. That's right. He was. He was, he was in, yeah, he was on the mainland, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I'm a generally positive person. I would like to think that I think the, the left always focuses too much on the presidential race and doesn't talk about the fact that if we don't get the Senate, I feel like Jesus could be president and it wouldn't really matter because they're not going to pass anything anyway. And they're going to get another Supreme Court justice in. So any progressive idea you want for the next 30, 40 years is just going to go to the Supreme Court anyway. So um, I would like to think people are looking at their local elections too. And if maybe we can at least pick up the Senate, even if Trump won, I know that probably won't happen because usually if the president wins, he's going to get the Senate. But um, I try to be positive. I'd like to think that Trump will not win. Um, and I always liked uh, Kamala Harris. I don't want to go so much into politics right now. You know, we've been on here for a while. But um, and I think Joe Biden's a fine guy. I mean, I don't agree with everything ever. You know, he's not he's not my candidate. Well, there's never been a candidate that's going to you know, take the oath with a Ramones t-shirt on probably. So I'm never going to get my candidate, you know, but, um, but uh, I, I'd like to think if, if, as usual, if every fucking person got out and voted, of course, Trump would lose, but you got to work. They're just playing to the whole um, electoral college thing. You know, Trump was just in Wisconsin yesterday because he's just trying to get those extra 30,000 people in Michigan and Wisconsin, you know, and that could fuck us all, you know? So. What um, about our local elections? Did you vote in the democratic primary? Yes, that I did. postponed from April to June. Yeah, yeah. I don't ever say who I voted for. I'm oh, that's to, okay. You don't I like to be the old school, as they say. I don't know who I'm voting for until I get there. Really? I don't. You're one of those in the middle people you were just talking about on C-SPAN. <laughs> I am another. I was an independent. <laughs> I've been a registered independent since I was 18 years old until Valentine's Day this year when I became a Democrat so that I could be elected. Well, and that's the thing. You have to, right? So I had to. to. And, you know, I'll be out registering voters tomorrow in Sunset Park speaking uh, basically restaurant cool. kitchen Spanish, which is all I actually ever learned despite studying Spanish in high school and skipping right. class. Um, sorry, I'm not yeah. always the best role model, but I'm trying. Uh, we do have a crisis unfolding here in New York City with regard to housing and oh God, yeah. economics. We also have a uh, mayoral and city council is your city council member up terming out for I next year so yes. so many of them are yeah. so who, what do you think is going to happen for mayor and what kind of mayor do you think we need here should we ask gibby maybe to run or well this could be a perfect time for this could be actually a time where someone runs and maybe actually able to have some influence on more affordable housing if everything truly goes to shit. I mean, if all these condos, Long Island City, right by where I live here, they're throwing up condos every morning. It seems like you come out and there's another blue fucking giant building 
they're half empty and they're going to stay half empty. And it's like, if this really becomes a giant problem, you might be able to have a mayor come in who's like, let's start making some of these places lower income, not, not just lottery here or there, but you know, really work on some of that and, and work with smaller businesses because retail is going to hell too. I mean, the, the only savior for most of Manhattan in the last 10 years was if Dwayne Reed or a bank or Starbucks would move into a building. Well, they're not moving in either. They're moving out. What did Chase get rid of something like 55 locations this summer or something like that in Manhattan? I think it was more than that. So those buildings are going to sit there empty. So we, it may be time for a mayor that's more amenable and he might be able to get the votes and some of the moneyed people to agree to like let small businesses move in here at a lower cost and get the city running again. Because de Blasio, I like some things about him, but he's basically just taken on the same world we've all been living in New York since the end of the 90s, which is tons of people with loads of money wanting to build big fucking buildings. You know, and it's like, well, we got the big buildings and they're going to sit there half empty now. So what the I fuck want to say like, Scott Stringer, the comptroller, who is actually yeah. one of the people who's running for mayor. But mm -hmm. Yeah, I just saw that the other day. Yeah. Passed around a, a survey for small businesses maybe around a month ago, and 85% or so of minority and female owned small businesses do not expect to be open. In right. I know. It's crazy. I know. I mean, the storefronts, I don't know how it is in Astoria, but in Brooklyn oh. already, it's been you know, Thor equities and the big clients oh. buy up the properties and, and sit and wait. They're sitting on it like a hen on an empty egg. Thor equities from Cleveland, Ohio. You're right, my hometown. Yeah. They're sitting on properties even in Cleveland. But yeah, I know it's really depressing. And when I lived over in Cobble Hill, I've been gone from there since 2011. And I remember even back then, Smith Street, I remember that one big block, it all just closed and it just sat there fucking empty. Remember Robin Desbois, lovely little French restaurant, sitting there empty still. I mean, maybe now it's a pizza place finally, but it's like how many more burger joints can open up for eight months and then close again? You know, it's like, so I, I'd like to think you're always hoping you always have to be some great, well-spoken politician that swoops in and is able to charm people and get some things done. So I don't know who that would be. I'm not sure that's Scott Stringer, but um, yeah, I don't he's know. A decent speaker, you know, he's a decent speaker and everything. Well, Eric but, Adams, uh, the Brooklyn Borough President, is running mm -hmm. for mayor. Yeah. Um, Maya Wiley, who is Dan Wiley's sister. Dan is uh, Nydia Velasquez's person, voice, is mouthpiece. He, is Jumani running? Jumani. No, everyone wants Jumani to run, but Jumani has said that they're not running. Boy, talking to that guy is super fucking inspiring. He's a, I met him and he's just a really, excuse me, really, really interesting, smart guy. But yeah, I, I do get the sense maybe he'd rather work a little bit behind the scenes or, you know, and work a little more before he gets up to some running for fucking president. Do you have a, a website or anything where folks can, can find out more about how to order the, so the book is coming out. Yes, I should say really quick. My book, um, it was in print for about eight years. They ran out of copies. They decided to do a 10th anniversary version I got to work on that now. In fact, you're the first person uh, in the world I'm telling this because I wanted to shut up about it until it actually happened. But I'm going to be working on a reprint of it with one more chapter, kind of an update chapter and some color photos. Hopefully that's out by early next summer. The company is called uh, Hal Leonard. Actually, it's called Rowan Littlefield. Uh, Rowan Littlefield bought Hal Leonard. That's my book was on Hal Leonard. Um, Your book, here's what I love about Stanley's book. This is Kansas City Lightning. But, you know, I love a book that in the middle... Yeah. The author decides like, hey, let's put in some pictures. I mean, does we have a ton of pictures. So serious and so wordish. I so have a ton of photos in my book. It's very fun.
You're well, I know that fans of this stuff are fans of ephemera, like old flyers and photos and glossy band major label po po pictures. And, you know, so now there's going to be color photos in it too, probably a different cover. Um, yeah, it's, it's so hopefully that'll be out by the spring. My band, New Bomb Turks, we have some songs on a, well, well, anyway, go to my Instagram if you want. It's edavidson2003 and I usually post shit on there. I write for Please Kill Me. Uh, online. Uh, I don't know if you know the book, Please Kill the, Me. The but, book, Please yeah. Kill Me, is a book that everyone who likes music I should read. Should read. So I write for their website. So I write for Please Kill Me online. I write for Rock and Roll Globe. And I write here and there otherwise. Um, that's about what I'm doing. Hanging on by a thread through COVID. Um, you know, hoping that Pelosi's uh, congressional relief plan gets through, which it won't of the senate and um we're holding on we're trying to stay positive I ride my bike a lot go check well, out you Instagram. ride down to red i usually have a oh, scratch yeah. off ticket that i scratch off for my guests and whatever we win i either donate to their uh charity of choice or purchase whatever they have that amount of so because the book's not quite out yet it's okay that i cannot find the scratch off probably also the result of having a six-year-old he <laughs> might have scratched it off cashed it in and he's at Disney World right now right. Um, with a mask on. Um, but anyway, when you're when you're pedaling past here in South Brooklyn, shoot me a text and uh, I owe you a scratch off ticket. Okay. And uh, maybe we can do something a little special for Stanley Crouch, who uh, left us on this earthly plane just yeah. a couple of days ago. And I'm sure I'll update with any service uh arrangements that are being made to pay my yeah, yeah, do that. Yeah. the only funeral i'll probably attend during covid only because um it's it's weird when you find someone who on paper or just by looking at their identity you wouldn't think they're a good fit for you or you would, oh what where are they friends it's a quick mm -hmm. story before we go my son's father's a jazz musician band leader writer um and he was meeting me at bar bruno one night to eat something at the bar and uh, that's on the corner of Union and Henry. I don't know yeah. if it was there. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I was there and then I popped in and then he said, he don't look now, but Stanley Crouch is sitting over there. <laughs> and I was like, oh shit, Stanley's here? And so I bounced over and I'm like, hi, Stanley. I give him a big hug. I'm like, can we eat with yeah. you? And I'm like, JC, come on over, sit down and eat with. He was like, after we left, he's like, you're friends with Stanley Crouch? <laughs> You know, I didn't realize who he was at that time. It's just a friend, you know, like you say, you fall into this uh, well, Mary, uh, cool uh, two hour conversation with him. Yeah. I remember sitting at Nadra's, that same coffee shop, and this uh, woman would come in and I'd see her, and we struck up a conversation one day, and it was Mary Heron who directed American Psycho and the Betty Page movie and all that. I shot Andy Warhol, and she was worked at Punk Magazine and, you know, knew all those people and hung out at CBGBs and all that. So here I am sitting talking to her one day and Stanley came in and sat down. We sort of chatted a little bit. I'm like, this is hilarious. I mean, it's one of the things I love about, you know, living in a town that has like mixed cultures because you can all shoot the shit about this stuff, you know, and they actually had uh, a couple of people in common just from, you know, back whenever. So, I mean, yeah, I love that stuff. And of course now today that coffee shop is not only gone, but that space is sitting there empty after three different businesses. And um, hopefully we get a mayor that just, you know, Let's see small businesses going again because it's pretty fucking weird over here. Why don't you run for mayor? Whoa, 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 whoa. Me? No, no. Eric Davidson for mayor. Sounds amazing. No, I have to be able to raise millions of dollars and I barely raised my rent yet this month. So, you know, there's no chance of that. Well, so you're just E Davidson 2003 on Instagram. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. And no website, but everything should be on there. I have, well, I'm on Facebook. You know, I have, oh, I have, um, we, I have a Tumblr site, We Never Learn. 
um, slash Tumblr, whatever. If you go to Tumblr and put in We Never Learn, you'll probably find it. Put my name in there. Um, and, uh, and I'll make sure that on kikivalentine.com, I link viewers to yeah. replay of this interview and, and discussion. And then yeah, I'll send you the all of your links to and, new, and newbombturks.com. We keep that. We keep that up. We're going to be on an online festival on the 27th. A guy in Japan is doing with a ton of bands that are in my book, actually. Um, called You're playing Jet a concert Fest. over Zoom? No, he's doing a, he's basically collecting rare clips from all these bands and just showing, he asked everybody, send me a clip and that hasn't been shown anywhere before. And he's just showing, some bands are still around, some bands aren't, some are old clips, some are new. He's this crazy guy, he's in this band, Guitar Wolf, really crazy Japanese band, and um, he's amazing. And so he's doing, a, it's like an eight hour long online festival with all these, so I think there are gonna be a few live bands but most of it's going to be just rare clips and stuff it's called right, music. for our friends here who, who you're not in their phone. Uh, what's a band that you've been listening to lately that they should check out? Oh, geez. Oh, when you hit somebody like that, uh, Miranda and the beat is a decent, uh, Brooklyn band that I found out just signed a third man and have a record coming out. Miranda and the beat. There's a band called Morn M O U R N who I just interviewed. They're on cap captured tracks. They're from Spain. Um, really good, uh, just kind of dark pop, really energetic, kind of punky, definitely punky, very 90s. You'd probably like them if you like the Pixies or the Breeders. Well, back then like I did. Yeah, yeah. Now I, I like Gang of Four. I like, I just got entertained. They kind of sound like that. They kind of have that choppy thing. I like, yeah. I like the bass. I like the bass and the drum. It's very clean and simple in that Gang of Four entertainment. That's just like one of the my favorite albums for some yeah, reason. Yeah. And I am going to pull out the Dead Kennedys and listen to that. There's a local band called Baby Shakes who are a lot of fun, good power pop. Yeah, band. people like Baby Shakes. Yeah, they're fun. I mean, you know, I, I, I've been lately. I've been getting a lot of old like reissues and stuff because I love finding obscure, completely lost punk rock. Like there's this label Hozak out of Chicago that puts out a lot of really cool, interesting, lost or never even unearthed shit. That's that's really good stuff. Almost Ready Records, right around the corner from you um, in Red Hook, is a good record store, and he puts he has a label that puts out some good. Yeah, I haven't popped in there. Uh, we have. I was going to ask you what your favorite record store is in New York City since Bleaker Bob's is gone. And well, Black Gold Records also near. You I love. I'm, please. Yeah, I'm and I love Academy. Uh, I love Academy Annex over in Greenpoint. I always try to tell this to people who think everything's dying in New York all the time. New York right now, I actually think is in a record store like Renaissance. There are so many stores, mainly in Greenpoint. There's a ton of them. Capture Tracks and Academy and Record Grouch and. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of stores. I rode by one the other day in Williamsburg. I never even heard of before. I, I can't remember the name now. It was the first time I ever saw it. I think it was called Face, maybe. It's some Japanese, a little tiny Japanese store, but like import vinyl. I mean, you've got a lot of great record stores in town. And I, I really, again, I'm a positive kind of guy. I really think that New York will be all right. It usually is. And I don't really care if there's a few more rats and a few more closed uh, condominium buildings for a while. You know, if rents go down and artists can survive a little more again, somehow with lower rent, at least, that's a good thing. Um, so people can support local businesses like these record stores you speak of. If they don't have a cool record store in their town because maybe they closed, uh, right. you can go online to these websites and Instagrams and buy something small from, take your unemployment that I know you're all getting, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is an act of resistance to take this unemployment money. Oh, it's great. I have most of my, um, a large portion of my unemployment money went. Buy a record money. with it, you know, drop some money in a Patreon uh, of someone you like and support. Go to my website and drop something in my cash app, you know, um, yeah. whatever we can do to support one another. And the important other thing before we close is that, yes, everyone should be out and voting 
and yeah, registering to vote. And I will leave you with my favorite bit of advice that you should share with your friends. Please don't have sex with anyone who does not vote. <laughs> That's like John Waters says, don't, don't uh, have sex with anyone who doesn't have a, a lot of books and does, can't name favorite books. And I know, in, just vote. It's easy. Respect, I will vote. should have had sex with Stanley Crouch then because his whole house was full of books. So many books. Books. So many books, yeah. Stanley was I, definitely a, a ladies' man. Yeah. I will vote.com is a good place to go to. That's legit. And it's easy to punch in your info and find out if you're registered or where to register or where to vote. Vote early if you can. Vote early, vote early, vote early if you can. Well, thanks so much for your time, Eric. I owe you a scratch off ticket. So shoot me a ticket <laughs> if you and your lady are peddling past here. Uh, we will. We'll come the, back. The Isle, of, the Isle of Misfit Toys that Red Hook Brooklyn is. Yeah. Um, thanks so much for everything. And and I hope that you have a safe and fun weekend. And uh, let's, if you see the ghost of Stanley, you know. Yeah, I will. <laughs> tell him, VIA. Did, he, did you ever email with him? A little, just a little bit. Like when my book came out, I mainly just when I'd see him at the coffee shop is when we talked. We didn't email too much. Wow, okay. that, was that his sign off? His sign off on everything was VIA. Oh yeah, I can't victory remember. is assured. And yeah, so victory is assured. Remember yeah. that victory yeah, is victory assured. Is assured. Yeah. Yeah. In memory All of right. our friend Stanley Crouch. Thanks so much, Eric. I hope Thanks. you have a I appreciate it. Soon. Thank Thanks you. for being stuck on Earth with me. Yeah. <laughs>